Welcome back to the Holyrood Magazine podcast, Politically Speaking. This week, at the end of what has been a fairly bruising week for the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, I spoke to Baroness Kishwe Faulkner, the chair of the EHRC, at the end of what had clearly been a personally bruising week. And the full interview will appear in the next issue of Holyrood Magazine. The Equality and Human Rights Commission was established in 2007. It merged the responsibilities of the Commission for Racial Equality, the Equal Opportunities Commission, concerned with sexism, and the Disability Rights Commission. But it was also charged with enforcing equality laws with respect to other protected characteristics, such as sexuality and religion. So far, so good. But last week, it found itself in the eye of the storm that is whirling around the reform of the Gender Recognition Act in Scotland when it wrote to the Scottish Government saying it should press pause on those plans. The letter provoked uproar, with the Commission finding itself being accused of everything, from being transphobic to a hate group to being a Tory government patsy. Welcome to the world of reasoned debate. Kishore, I suppose the very first question has to be, how on earth have we got to a position this week, basically, whereby the Equalities and Human Rights Commission is being branded transphobic or even a hate group? I mean, can you explain how we've got here? Well, Maddie, this tells you about the tenor of this debate and it makes it all, you know, we're desperately sad. I think how we've got here is that the debate has changed and it's changed quite significantly. I mean, it's the degree of bitterness over what should be a balance of rights debate where reasonable people should be able to disagree well seems to have been lost. And you have descriptions that I don't even understand of us as EHRC that not only undermine what we're trying to do in the public perception, particularly for trans people, I think it, it, it damages trans people's rights and trans people's perceptions and other people's perceptions about trans people to see the debate has become so so very bitter and uh, it really concerns me because we're you know we want to improve relations between people not to make them worse i mean this particular week i guess i mean this has been sparked absolutely by the letter that you sent to the scottish government calling for a pause on its planned gra reform bill i presume the contents of that letter didn't come as a surprise to the government but has the reaction come as a surprise to you? I, shall I say I've been in public life for long enough where it didn't come as a... I think it's the tenor of the reaction that came as a surprise to me. Statements made in Holyrood and, and general, the manner in which we were described and our actions were described. So we're a... You know, we're a statutory body. We're a regulator. It is our job to advise governments on proposed legislation. It is our job to advise governments on defects in legislation. It is our job to litigate on the legislation that government passes. Of course, we had a meeting with um, the cabinet secretary 
before we sent the letter. And I assured her repeatedly that whatever law is passed by Holyrood, we will regulate it, we will implement it, we will do so fearlessly. We are the servants of the legislation. That's our role as I see it. And we would do that, but it falls. It's incumbent upon us to also point out to them when we're extremely concerned about proposals. And that's all I said to her we were trying to do. We talked through the, some of the proposals in, you know, in very general terms. We had a very, I thought, respectful conversation. And I, you know, she's since written back to us and we're preparing our response to her. It's still respectful, as it should be. And I'm, you know, they are the democratically elected representatives of the people. We are Scotland's equality regulator. Of course, we will carry out their wishes. But it's also our duty to the people of Scotland to express our concerns where we find them. So spell out to me what your concerns are. Well, our concerns are, I wonder if I can first of all explain, if people aren't completely clear, what our job is. So we are Great Britain's equality rights regulator. In Scotland, you have your own Human Rights Commission. And in England and Wales, we're also the human rights regulator and the promoter. We basically oversee the functions that are described in the Equality Act, which are nine protected characteristics. For the purposes of this conversation, the three most relevant ones are gender reassignment, sexual orientation and sex. Those are three protected characteristics. And we also give guidance. So not only do we enforce, we litigate, we do compliance, we do investigations, and we give guidance to, um, you know, to bodies that need guidance. For example, we're at the moment shortly going to release some guidance on single-sex exemptions in the Equality Act as they relate to gender reassignment. So that's what we do. Now, to answer your wider question about our concerns, our concerns are uh, there's several of them. And I think if I can also deal with perhaps one of the accusations that's been levelled at us, that the what has changed, I keep being asked what has changed. And I think I would say that the most profound thing that's changed is that the consultations were done some time ago. The survey was done, some the LGBT survey was done in 2018. Since then, a lot of proposed legislation has been put on the table, in the case of England, also withdrawn by the government here. Uh, the Scottish government has put that on the table. The United Kingdom government is now consulting on conversion therapy as, as well. There have been a number of court cases testing the application of the two acts. And when, you know, you tend to get litigation where law is uncertain or unclear. And that's why people go to court is to find out who's right. And, you know, in terms of litigation, there's been more of it. The census question has come up. And in that context, the accuracy of data gathering has come up. And we have realized something that we hadn't quite appreciated before was the importance of data accuracy. 
across a whole range of areas. You know, one small example where we regulate, where we're the regulator, is the gender pay gap uh, regulations. And when you can't rely on accurate data, then you're in a more difficult position. There's the issue of competitive sport. And um, there's a divergence of opinion on legal understandings of sex, which is the Equality Act. And unfortunately, in the Gender Recognition Act, there is confusion between sex and gender. The words are used interchangeably. Most people tend to use them interchangeably, but gender is not defined in law. There is no legal understanding of gender. So basically, the operation of the gender assignment provisions don't depend on the position of a gender recognition certificate. Today, I'm talking about the current legislation. So the issue that will come to light when the Scottish, when the Scottish government changes, reforms the Gender Recognition Act, is that amendments to it will broaden the range of people who can obtain gender recognition. In other words, self-ID is the, is the normal parlance. So the number of people who can change their legal sex will, will be a different number of people, a larger number of people than we currently know. This could affect how the Equality Act's sex discrimination provisions operate. So when we're told that it doesn't have any impact on the Equality Act or the Gender Recognition Act, all we're asking the Scottish Government to do is to perhaps show us what um, an impact assessment looks like. Have they done an impact assessment on all of these things? Um, they have, uh, have they done a memorandum on human rights? Because they're human rights that are engaged on this as well. So we're waiting to see their legislative proposals. We... The draft bill that they produced covers some of these issues, but it didn't go through the parliamentary process. The parliamentary process on a draft bill is that people scrutinise a draft bill and they call in experts from different areas and they then come to a view. That process hasn't been gone through and that's all we're asking for. I mean, two things I was going to ask around that. I mean, People do have become very focused over this week on what has changed in terms of the EHRC's position. Now, you've explained that, that in some ways the debate has happened and various case law has changed things and also language has changed things. This has become very personal and focused on you and people saying, oh, this is about a, a new chairwoman and she has decided to change things. How does that make you feel? I mean, I feel as we're talking, you've clearly been pained by this. Well, I've been reminded of the Merchant of Venice. When you prick us, do we not bleed? I think it would be, I would be a particularly unreflective person if it didn't penetrate at some level. But I've spent... 30 years of my life working in this space and I'm here today because I believe in equality and human rights and I'm a professional. I have to remain focused on the organisation 
And the most important thing in the organisation is delivering fairly and in a balanced way for all the people of our country across all the protected characteristics. I think, you know, for for many of us that have been involved in this um, so-called debate for the last four years, it's the the fact that every group or any individual that gets involved, they basically have to be pigeonholed into having a position. I mean, you, you say you've been involved in equalities for over 30 years. Have you felt this particularly acutely in this, that really people are being pushed into positions that may be completely erroneous? I think it's not only that people are pushed into positions that are beyond erroneous because they're incredibly damaging at a personal level to people who are pushed. You know, and I always, in public life, you sometimes think of policy and you don't think of the people that are affected by the policy. I've never been like that. I've always thought in of, of the impact of things we say as well as things we do on on people. And it's incredibly saddening to see that we're pushed, that people are pushed into positions. And that's why we take our duty to foster good relations very seriously. People shouldn't be pushed. There is gray areas in doubt and questioning are the the sheet anchor of a healthy democracy. And they're why the freedom of expression is such an importantly profound part of human rights and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, yes, you know, and that's, I will be as robust in protecting people's right to speak as I ever have been and will continue to do so. I suppose the hard thing in all of this is that it was it has been framed for, from the very beginning as almost you have to be pro-trans or anti-trans, which is probably the wrong positioning from the very beginning. But it means that even a body like yours is being portrayed almost as a campaign or a protest group rather than what it is. I think that's so true. And that's why I went to some pains to explain to your listeners what our role is. We're a statutory body, we were set up by law, and we're a regulator. But I want to answer this, I particularly want to address this accusation that we're an anti-trans rights organisation. You know, I'm not clear how you can be asked as to whether you're anti or pro anything when all you ask for is more detailed consideration Is that a controversial thing? Is life now so brittle that to ask questions is now of itself deemed to be controversial? We are, we're firmly committed. In fact, we have a duty as the Equality and Human Rights Commission to promote the human rights of trans people and to prevent them from discrimination and harassment. Of course, I've referred already to the Scottish Human Rights Commission, but this is also part of equality law. And, you know, we we have enormous regard for the Scottish government's commitment to improve a lot of things for trans people, like gender identity services in Scotland, where they're putting their money where their mouth is and actually, you know, putting money on the table. We've called for that here in England repeatedly. We welcome, there's a lot of, what I'm doing is I'm trying to say to you, there's a lot of agreement here 
And let's not forget that. We, we agree that the Scottish government um, wants to put in place appropriate safeguards. And we think that's really important to tackle discrimination against trans people. We recommended that the process that applicants demonstrate that they fully understand the legal, social and personal implications of a legal change in status is important. And we're glad they've taken that on board. But, and we understand that there are strong views here, that I think we all want to get to the same end. And the end is to make life easier for trans people to live in the identity that they feel so strongly, strongly committed to. That's the end that I want to see. It's just uh, all we ask for in getting to that end is to navigate the road a little bit more carefully. Because you don't improve trans people's rights by damaging another group's rights. And potentially, that can happen in this regard. I mean, on the legal position, it wouldn't be the first time that a piece of well-meaning Scottish legislation or proposed policy has been challenged by the UK government for impinging on reserved laws. Is that the, the basic concern that you have here, that here we have a reserved law and we have devolved law and they may well butt up against each other. I think that is, I mean, I'm not really expert to comment on that because we're the Equality and Human Rights Commission, but certainly I can foresee there may be some impacts uh, if Scotland uh, makes makes the gender um, reassignment provisions different to England and Wales, we are one country and I can imagine there would be impacts. But I don't think I'm legally expert to comment on that today. Once the bill, once we see a bill, we would be taking legal advice on that, as you would expect. So one of the concerns, I guess, has been that over the last few years, as people have learned what the proposed law might mean or might not mean, is that women have become more concerned about risks to their rights. And the First Minister has basically dismissed them as not valid. Do you think that was helpful in this debate? Well, I I guess I'm fortunate in sharing something with the First Minister, which is that we both operate in the public and political domain. I'm um, a parliamentarian. I don't describe myself as a politician. I describe myself as a parliamentarian. But in my daily life for 18 years, I've witnessed political debates And I'm certain that sometimes people say something that has unintended interpretations. And I would like to think that she certainly didn't intend to infer that when she said that. She wouldn't dismiss the the views of 51% of the population as not valid. I'm certain about that. And I accept in good faith her, her remarks that she's enormously committed to the rights of women as well. Let's address some of the, um, I mean, you've already done some of this, but let's address the specific accusations over the last week. So one was that you are speaking to so-called anti-trans groups. And I presume what people mean by that are like, they mean LGB alliance and fair play, specifically talking about promoting the rights of women and girls, or in the case of LGB alliance, gay men and women. Do you think that's a fair accusation that you you were speaking to people from another side of the argument, if you like. 
Well, again, I go back to what I say about sides. I don't think there's sides in this argument. Not for us. We're a regulator. Impartiality is is baked into our DNA, um, including all commissioners. I mean, we, we as a board, we've had impartiality training in, in the last few months. So that's baked into our DNA. Now, look, your your listeners may not be aware that we were taken to, we were not taken to court, the census um, Office for National Statistics was taken to court in England and Wales for the census issue, where we were criticised for the position that we had taken by them, by women's groups, for having not considered the impact on women of this change in the question. After that ruling, would you not expect a regulator to speak to the people who won that court case to say, we believe we got this wrong, let's hear your concerns? That's what we have done. Where there's litigation, where we have found out to be on the wrong side, I think fair-minded people, trans people, would expect us, if they had been involved in a litigation where we had been on the wrong side, for us to go to them and talk to them. But incidentally, we didn't go to them, so to speak. They asked for a meeting with us to ensure that we would be carrying out our statutory duties. And of course, we had a meeting with them. Uh, LGB Alliance, I had no idea who they were. We were new commissioners. Six new commissioners had come in to the organisation. We knew we were having to deal with these issues on a daily basis. And in order to for the board to be better informed, I asked for some training, a seminar on these issues. And three groups were invited. In fact, I think it was more than three groups were invited. And among those groups, one of the groups was LGB Alliance. We also invited a trans-inclusive rape crisis centre. I think they're based in Brighton. But the idea that we shouldn't train ourselves up or the idea that we have to uh, emphasise or have a veto by certain players on who else can be in the room is not acceptable to us. Do you think the characterisation by the critics of this week of groups like LGB Alliance as being anti-trans is wrong? I feel, I feel deeply unhappy. The English language is a rich language. It, it, it isn't my original mother, mother tongue, but I think I speak it sufficiently to know how rich it is. Shorthand and words that don't capture the complexity of perhaps even the hurt in this case. I think these people are feeling hurt by positions taken by others. But there are better ways to describe hurt, to describe it more more carefully, with more compassion, more compassionately. I don't think describing people as, as some of the language used against the women and to describe people as as anti, anti this or that, I don't think it shows any compassion at all or an appreciation of another person's point of view. Inclusion is a word that the trans lobby rightly wants to be used in its context. It's a word that I take incredibly seriously. And I think alongside inclusion comes a duty not to exclude others. Do you think the EHRC's position previously was wrong in terms of not speaking perhaps to women's groups 
or just the the, the debate and the arguments and the nuance has moved on. And that's why you needed to speak to more people. Well, let me put that on the record. EHRC has been speaking to Fair Play for Women since 2018, when it first expressed its concerns to, to, to the organisation long before I came along. Uh, so I wouldn't say that EHRC chose to speak more to one side and I said I don't want to refer to them as sides, but just for shorthand here, to one group versus another group. I think the duty of a statutory regulator is to speak to all groups who are impacted by legislation at any given point in time. You will have periods in time when you'll be speaking only to disabled people. You'll have periods of time when you're speaking only to people affected by age discrimination or by sexual orientation or by young people. We've got in our strategic plan a focus now on artificial intelligence. I suspect in that area, we'll be speaking a lot more to people who are racial minorities than we will to white people, because there is adverse impact on people with a darker darker skin color and facial recognition technologies and algorithms impact on, on people, racial minorities, recruitment, and so on. So at given points in time, you tend to focus, given on your work stream, you tend to focus more on one group versus another. And I think perhaps that balance got lost a little bit in the past, and we're trying to redress that. Do you think in all of this, and there's obviously a backdrop to it, but do you think that Stonewall basically thought it had a monopoly on speaking on this issue? Well, one of the criticisms levelled against us in that training seminar was that we didn't speak to any particular trans charity. We would have thought, first of all, I want to set the record straight there, and we did try to get get the respective uh, advocacy groups on board, but Stonewall has presented itself very much in the space as representing trans rights. Um, it's had the dominant conversation in that, which is why we are so surprised that they don't appear to wish to engage when invited to do so. And obviously, there was a bit of a, well, there's been a bit of a furore over the whole year about various groups within the public sector pulling out from Stonewall's diversity champion scheme, which also the EHRC did. Do you think that's affected relationships and has fed into the debate that? this has got us to the place we are now. I wouldn't really be able to comment. For us, our decision was based on a value for money decision. We, you know, we our budget is more constrained year on year. And we have to be very careful with how we spend taxpayers' money. And we really didn't, you know, we are the experts on diversity and equality we shouldn't be spending taxpayers' money on having someone else advise us in that regard. One of the other accusations that came out this week was that members of the ERC um, have worked on or taken an interest in legal cases that have been characterised as being anti-trans, such as the the Kira Bell case and the Maya Forstata case. I mean, how would you um, counter some of the accusations that have come around that? Well, we're going to be doing a full rebuttal of all of these allegations because they are misinformed. They're, to some extent, 
um, not accurate. I mean, for example, the the accusation that interests, conflicts of interest were not duly regarded is entirely incorrect, and I'll explain that in a second. But I also want to say that the implication that I somehow am this all-powerful chair, I sometimes look at media and I think to myself, every chair in the land will be wanting to wanting me to give them training on how to control a board so effectively, because you would think I was omnipresent and, and incredibly powerful. We're a collegiate organization. Our commissioners are a college of commissioners. Everybody's views come into account. Just for the record, when those interests were declared, uh, I'm not really in the best or how they were handled. I'm not in the best position to answer that because my predecessor, who is much approved of by these groups, David Isaacs, he was the chair when those things happened. It wasn't me. So I can't give an account. You would have to go and ask him on that front. But but the other, Alistair Henderson, now this is um, our commissioner. This is a profound misunderstanding by a journalist of the operation of how barristers operate in chambers. So barristers are bound by a duty of impartiality in their legal code. They operate on a cab rank rule. So your clerk assigns you, the clerk of chambers assigns you the court case you would do. He was assigned this particular court case because he was next in line to be assigned the legal work that was upcoming. The question you have to ask, Mandy, or someone should ask these groups, or the journalists in that case, would he have felt the same way about Alistair Henderson's perceived conflict of interest if Alistair Henderson had been briefed by Tavistock in that particular court case? Because Alistair would have acted for Tavistock. You act for whoever you're assigned to. He could easily have acted for Tavistock and been successful on Tavistock's behalf. Then would would he have been charged with uh, being biased against certain decisions? I mean, I suppose what's interesting in it, Kishwar, is that at the end of the day, both the Kira Bell case and the Mayor Forstater case are only characterised as anti-trans by a particular lobby, if you like, around all of this. I mean, these were issues that should surely be at the heart of everything that you're doing. They were both to do with equalities and human rights. And so to call them, to characterise them as anti-trans seems fundamentally wrong anyway. It is a profound misunderstanding of what we do and what protected characteristics are. Because the Forstater case, we took on to clarify the law on whether a deeply held belief is protected by the Equality Act. So it had nothing to do with trans. It had to do with the protected characteristic of religion and belief. You know, if you if you interpret issues as being pro-trans or anti-trans across the nine protected characteristics, I'm sure you'll find some example in age discrimination where you'll be able to say, oh, well, that's anti-trans or, or in disability where that's anti-trans because trans people, thankfully, like you and I, live in exactly the same world and have exactly the same health and mental health and, you know, social, legal, employment, economic issues as everyone else. 
I mean, for someone like you, when we're even when we're discussing this, and I'm saying, oh, this is characterized as anti-trans or pro-trans or whatever, the disinformation in this whole, and I keep calling it a so-called debate because it's certainly not a reasonable debate, doesn't the, the disinformation completely and utterly frustrate you? Yes, it does. And I sometimes feel as if we ought to be becoming a fact-checking organisation. Um, but there are others who do that very well, unfortunately, not well-resourced enough for, to, to be able to defend us most of the time. Um, I think most fair-minded people can read between the lines. I have huge trust in the British people to, to raise the odd eyebrow when they read something expressed in a certain way and to arrive at their own conclusions about whether, whether that is a fair description of who we are or whether it is not. And, you know, I leave it to the good judgment of the people to come to their view on this. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the more, I think, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about David Isaacs, but perhaps one of the more personal issues for you as a woman of colour was that he, he is basically saying that you're, you're advancing um, a debate of the Tories, which is pitching the rights of white working class people against the rights of ethnic minorities. How, how do you feel about that? It's just profoundly, profoundly, I don't want to put words into his mouth. I want to address this answer in a, in a very general way when people say that. I represent, at the moment, sitting here before you, four protected characteristics. I'm a Muslim, ethnic minority woman of a certain age. I've lived in this country for some 44 years, and I have lived in those 44 years across the Western world. In other words, countries where I was a minority, I've had the privilege of living in several European countries and, and the US in this period. The idea that I wouldn't have experienced racism, sexism, or religious-based discrimination myself, sometimes at some points in time when society's very brittle, day in and day out, I have to say, although thankfully, and this is why I'm so enormously committed to defending the Equality Act, because it is in the United Kingdom, I think we have six pieces of race discrimination legislation on our statute books, starting from the 1970, starting from 1959 and then onwards into the 1970s, after which there were a large number of acts. The United Kingdom has become a much better place to be non-white than when I arrived here in 1976. When I say that, that is not to say that people my skin colour do not experience discrimination day in and day out in certain areas. They still do, because law doesn't is a blunt tool to change people's behaviour. It is the means we have to change people's behaviour, but it's rather blunt at changing people's behaviour. And prejudice prevails, as we unhappily know, on the football ground, on the cricket ground, in job employment, in decisions taken by the police, by our public authorities. It's around us. Discrimination prevails. I would love for us to no longer have a, a job. I would love for the Equality and Human Rights Commission to be abolished because there would be no need to tackle race discrimination or any of the other discriminations. 
alas, that's not where we find ourselves. And accusations to suggest that I speak for anyone other than fulfilling my statutory role are ones that I take very seriously and I reflect on those things. You know, I, I reflect, I commented earlier on how I think most people are self-reflective and I would like to think of myself in that category. So when, when a distinguished predecessor of mine feels he's never met me ever, I've had no interaction with him. I think we might have been in a parliamentary briefing once several years ago. I've never interacted with him particularly. To suggest that I'm in any way partial on one side of the political divide versus another is it doesn't help me do my job. It's as simple as that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission exists to make the the world a better place, certainly make Britain a better place for people to live in. This week, in this debate, in this issue around the Gender Recognition Act, personally, have you felt this is a great place to live? As I said, I've lived in several other countries and I'm a first generation immigrant to this country. I came here as a young adult. Yes, I would still say it's a great place to live. Yeah, hand on heart. I've I've lived in other countries and I think we sometimes forget that. You know, sometimes people want us to do international comparisons and say, oh, that country's better or that country's better. I have quite a lot of experience and my family does. I have members of my family that live in other countries as well. Um, yeah, no, this is a great, great place to live. It's a great country. And we have our faults. You can't, as I say, you know, a country doesn't represent the individuals, 68 million people. Our processes, our laws, our institutions, on the whole, even when they're found wanting, and this week has really shown how many of them are found wanting, we're still a great country, nevertheless, because our processes are designed eventually, and in some cases, if I can say that uh, without becoming political, in some cases, they're a bit slow to remedy the problems, but they do remedy the problems. And you get good people in public service. I want to stand up for people in public service. I think everyone in public service, whether in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, or, or England, go into it to make lives better for other people. I guess I meant for you personally, given how emotional it must have felt this week. I mean, were you prepared for the onslaught and how it might feel personally? It's, uh, it's painful, but I've been, when I came into public life, when I, some 40 years ago, when I entered politics 40 years ago and when I entered parliament 18 years ago, I knew that there are going to be times when, you know, being in political life is not is not comfortable. So I'm fairly robust, I'm fairly resilient. And I am, I think having deep-seated values and loving friends and family makes a huge difference. And I'm blessed to have both. Are you a transphobe? I don't know what the meaning of that word is. It gets bandied around a lot at the moment, though, doesn't it? Too much. Do you see a way through this? I mean, I think many of us that have been involved in this have been exposed to um, 
emotions and uh, views that we hadn't realised would get us to such a painful place. I just wonder how we get through it and how everybody comes together after it all or or how it indeed ends. Well, it, I think one thing we are we all need to take take courage from is that things do go through a process and come to a denouement, they do come to a, a conclusion. And I just go back to what I say, which is that, uh, and the Archbishop of Canterbury put it in a debate on the 10th of December in the House of Lords beautifully, that there should be space for us for decent people to disagree well. And I was enormously grateful. I spoke in the chamber in that debate, in his debate. I described my experience of living in authoritarian countries and then therefore valuing the freedoms that democracy gives us so much. And that's why I stand up for freedom of expression, including including for people to to be objectionable, uh, as, as some of these instances you've just talked about are. But I was so, so grateful that, again, there you go, the leader of, of, uh, of religious groups to stand up and remind us that it is possible to disagree well and to be fair-minded in listening to other people. And that's where I always come back to the British people. I think, on the whole, we're a fair country. Just coming back to where we are with the Scottish government, Kishwar, I mean, you can't compel the Scottish government to pause or to change anything within the legislation that they propose, which we think will come in the next few weeks. What happens if the legislation, as was previously proposed, goes through the Scottish Parliament, is passed? What What do you think the dangers of that will be? Well, I didn't want to cry wolf till we've seen legislation. It's not our job to do so. It wouldn't be responsible of me to do so. So we await looking at the bill. We would be extremely pleased if there was a comprehensive impact assessment, a memorandum on the human rights implications or a human rights impact assessment as well, and to see what scrutiny throws up as the bill goes through the parliament. Uh, you know, people may not appreciate that the bills, the best drafted bills in life, always improve as they go through scrutiny in parliament. And we await what is uncovered in scrutiny in terms of the explanatory notes to the bill and the questions that may be asked. Uh, and the clarifications given by ministers at the dispatch box. We wait for the whole process. And as I assured the cabinet secretary, that whatever bill becomes the act in Scotland, we will be the enforcement body for it. And we will do it without fear or favour. You're having to spend, it seems, a disproportionate amount of time talking about this particular issue around the GRA. Are there other things that you would want the EHRC to be getting going with in terms of equalities that are just having to wait or not getting the attention? Well, we, we're, we're required to give a, a balanced view across nine protected characteristics, as I was just described. So I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that we're neglecting anything. 
we are an incredibly professional organization and the organization doesn't get distracted by issues that take up perhaps a disproportionate amount of time in one week versus another. It is it has um, a very professional ethos and people continue to work on what they continue to work on. But if you're asking me personally whether I'm frustrated that our delivery isn't what I would like it to be in the sense that we have so many priorities in our next strategic plan. We want to prioritize age discrimination, but we want to prioritize fairness for young people because the pandemic has really impacted on young people's rights now and their future prospects. And so we want to look more deeply at fairness for young people as they go forward um, at school level, at educational level, exams and so on, but also in terms of employment prospects. We want to improve things in terms of ethnic pay gap reporting, gender pay gap reporting, where there's been very, we've had good results. But basically, I want us to be the organisation that delivers for why, if you're disabled, you couldn't get adequate transportation to go into work, why, if you've got an elderly parent who needs certain care or care home or certain safeguards at home, certain amenities at home, reasonable accommodation hasn't been made for you, uh, why public authorities aren't taking on board their public sector equality duty to give you what you need to, why race, um, you know, public authorities are not doing what they need to do in that, our investigatory powers, our, our, our compliance and enforcement powers. I'm really desperately keen to improve delivery and to get all of those things dealt with in the service of the British people. Because there are a lot of people who think this is a small debate that belongs in a small side of what we do. And they want us to work on the panoply of areas where the law isn't being implemented as it should be. And I, the other commissioners, and the organisation itself is raring to go in those areas. So can I tell you, you know, we've just, for example, in race litigation, we've just launched a quarter of a million pound fund to improve litigation specifically directed towards race. We've never done that before. We're bursting with ideas of things we want to do. And yes, we want to get on with it and deliver for everyone, not just one protected characteristic. Although I should say respectfully, I really understand how important this is for trans people. But, and, and surely for women. I mean, one of the things I was going to come back to is that I question a lot about why this has become such a big debate and a big bone of contention. But surely it's about the very essence of who we are. And, and one of the problems is language almost needs to catch up with where we are in life these days. And sex and gender throughout the Equalities Act and throughout many other pieces of legislation have, has been conflated. And that's caused immeasurable problems. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And in the longer term, we may need to look at whether there's, I mean, the courts are navigating this at the moment on our behalf, on the country's behalf. And, you know, but you're absolutely right. It does get, it's, it's used loosely in the vernacular. It's not used specifically as in the protected characteristic. 
are you confident that we will be able to come out all of the, from all of this and start to have reasonable discussions again about many things? It just feels that this is part of a polarised debate, that everything in life at the moment appears to be polarised. It's, I think, Mandy, the way I would characterise it, I, I wouldn't say that I was confident. Uh, it, I, I wish I could, but I can't. But I think the way I would characterise myself and our organisation is that I'm an optimist. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed every day if I weren't. And the organisation looks forward. It looks forward. It isn't an organisation that freezes up if it's caught in the headlights. It's resilient, it's robust, and above all, it's impartial and fair. And, you know, I feel I feel so proud of having been given the opportunity to help to lead the organisation. It's I did the Equality Act back in 2006 in Parliament and the 2010 Act. And once that had happened, we all in, in the team, uh, you know, had a, had a little glass of something when the Act was passed and, and took a deep sigh of relief and said to each other, well, that's done now you know, thinking it was over. And here I am, 10 years, a decade later, caught in some of those arguments that we had on the floor of the House. Uh, So it shows that law is a blunt instrument and that, you know, things that happen in everyday life continue to happen in everyday life. But when I look back in the longer term, when I first arrived in this country in 1976 to today, I have to say that the protections that the law gives us have been incredibly important in making our country a better place. And I'm enormously grateful to governments of all complexions, to Labour governments who put in place some of the equality considerations, to the Conservative government for putting in place same-sex marriage and building on those and building on those laws. And um, I think everybody, I can only repeat that. Everybody gets out of bed in the morning at EHRC determined to do the best for the country. And that's what we're here to do. And you haven't felt over the past week that you'd rather just shut that door and go away? I, well, I won't say that I haven't felt that. I think I'm probably more more likely to say that, that yes, you want to pull the duvet over your head and maybe you sometimes do it for about five minutes and then you realise that escape isn't the answer.